You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Złe duchy przybierają tyle postaci, że nie można się w tym połapać. Jestem Gaspar Soares z Kadyksu. Nazywam się Moraredo. Nazywam się Enina Fraskita Salera. Jestem Don Pedro Velasquez. To się chyba źle skończy. Nazywam się Alfons. Pan Worden. To oczywiste. Wszystko się pokręci. Musimy zatrzymać go tu za wszelką cenę. Była tutaj księga. Nigdy takiej księgi nie było. Jesteś skupiany. Nie lękam się nikogo. Gdyby to przeczytał do końca, wydarzenia, które mają nastąpić, nie miałyby żadnego sensu. Fraskita opowiedziała swą historię Buskerosowi. Ten Lopezowi Soares, który znów opowiedział ją seniorowi Avadoro. Tymczasem jedna historia rodzi drugą, a z tej wysnuwa się trzecia. Oszaleć można. <śmiech> Należy ułożyć nowe kombinacje, wtedy całość stanie się jasna. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also returning to the Projection Booth is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Well, you know, if I open my eyes and I'm laying under the gallows again, I'm going to be a little upset. This week we're discussing the Saragossa Manuscript. Based on the novel from the early 19th century by Jan Potocki, the film was released in 1965 and directed by Wojciech Haas. It tells the rather oblique tale of Alphonse van Warden, a Walloon captain of the guard, and his circular adventures in the region of Zaragoza, which is in modern-day Spain. It's about midway between Barcelona and Madrid. This is one of the films that we love to talk about on the projection booth, where there's a beginning, middle, and end, though not necessarily in that order. And in order to discuss the film, we're going to be spoiling the movie, though we may end up shedding some light on some things. We're not really sure. We'll just have to see how this goes. So, Sam, when was the first time that you saw the Saragossa manuscript, and what did you think? A couple years ago, I sort of discovered 60s and 70s Polish cinema, and so I watched it in with a bunch of other things, like uh, Haas's Hourglass Sanitarium, and my mind was just blown. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of thing that I love, but I didn't know it existed up until a couple of years ago. And it just, it like, this is exactly what I want from Polish art house cinema. How about you, Rob? Well, I remember when it was reissued. Uh, I think it may have played at the DFT here in Detroit. And I just remember the poster was very sort of like, it looked like um, a Fillmore poster from the late 60s. And I heard that Jerry Garcia was involved. And I was like, yeah, that I got to stay away from that. So I didn't see it then. Um, even though I know that uh, Martin Scorsese put some money into it. So it wasn't until, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago I tried to watch it. And I think I I don't know if I saw the, the, re, the redone one that was reissued or something, but I don't know. It just didn't catch my attention. And then uh, I sat down to watch the whole thing this week. And, um, you know, the, the thing is, is people talk about how convoluted it is. It's not. Like, it's it's amazing how much people write about this and go, oh, I don't, you know, it's, it's so wacky. And I'm like, not really. It actually has kind of a conventional structure in some manner. It's either that or I've watched too many. And, you know, this is a, a cause for drinking Bunuel films. So there you go. No, I totally agree. And I find that kind of baffling. Like, it makes me feel like the people writing about the movie didn't really watch the movie because... It has a similar sort of structure as almost a Shakespeare comedy, except with more layers. 
but I always see it described as being surreal, but it's not really. I think what it is is sometimes these reviewers are going, who am I writing the review for? And yes, if you're writing it for someone who, you know, chiefly loves Adam Sandler films, it's going to be weird. They're going to go, wow, that's the weirdest movie I've ever seen, man. I guess maybe the reviewer is thinking of who it is that they're writing the review for. And they're thinking, oh, well, mainstream folks who are into mainstream film, they're going to they're not going to understand it. It's too wacky. And for me, the whole thing is just two guys. I mean, they, they give you the setup, which is there's a it's Napoleonic Wars in Spain. And these two guys stumble on a book from opposite sides, and they sit there and become engrossed in the book as the war goes on around them. And then there's just these series of stories within stories, which, as I said, get ready to drink again, Bunuel's films, where he's got people waking up in the dreams of other people or people continuing a story that someone else started, it's not that hard to follow. The thing that I find funny, and this was the joke that I made at the beginning, if I wake up under the gallows again, I'm going to be upset, is there are these reoccurring images, these reoccurring scenes that happen from different angles. And that also makes it an easier structure to deal with as well, I think. It's basically gothic Arabian Nights if Arabian Nights had more interlinking characters between the stories. Yeah, it's funny. I was reminded of Disney's Aladdin while I was watching this, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, Disney's Aladdin starts off with uh, Robin Williams voicing this old merchant and telling the tale that we're about to see. And it always kind of irked me that they never went back to that framing story. They never go back to the framing story in this one either, but I think that's okay because we kind of leave it where the other story begins. It's not necessarily that we have to go back to that frame because the way that we see where the book ends up and then we see them find the book at the beginning of the film. And it's this nice kind of cyclical nature that they have there. And yeah, I was really reminded of the way that the one guy is translating the stories for the other guy that it felt like what's going to happen at the end of this, when they're done with this book, because it did feel a little bit like Scheherazade telling the, the thousand and one stories. It also reminds me of something like Canterbury Tales, where you have these different individual stories of people going on a pilgrimage. If you were going to say if there was a framing to this, and, and I know this might be a little bleak and weird, but like my framing would be go back to where the war was happening and the two guys sitting there reading the book and they're just skeletons. They've been so engrossed in the book, they're dead now. It's just, you know, because that's really what he's trying to do with these stories is just constantly lay these layers in these stories. And you get the feeling that, it's almost like these stories could go on forever. And I think like one of the characters even says that. It's like there's this person's story and that person. And it just keeps going on and on and on. But I really like the way that it, I mean, at least the first time you watch it, it kind of surprises you in how you are introduced to like a new story will begin. And a minute or two into that new story, you'll realize you're being introduced to a character who was referred to in an earlier story like the the young nobleman's father and and stuff like that but i really like that he sort of returns to that at the end like you were saying and kind of nods back to that framework and my understanding so i've only read parts of the original saragossa manuscript but my understanding is that the ending in Haas's is different than the ending in that i was cured all right I didn't make it through the entire book. I read a lot of it, and I was very surprised of 
just how faithful it was. Like as soon as we're introduced to the two princesses, I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. This is exactly what I was reading. And just, yeah, everything was really lining up between the two. And it was an easier movie for me to experience than a book because of the layers and all those things. And I mean, this whole movie and the book itself is all about storytelling and just the importance of storytelling. And yeah, I love when we jump from layer to layer to layer and we just go deeper and deeper. And I'm sitting there realizing like, okay, we're like six levels into this thing of who's telling this story. And then it's this whole question of like, well, who's really narrating this? Because there are times where we are seeing parts of stories that the narrator isn't present for whoever is actually narrating this part of the story. So there's no real way that we could have ever seen this. And then the way that the stories intersect, is fantastic. You were saying that we'll see one thing happen in one story and then we'll see it again from another person's point of view from another. And sometimes it might be in the background. We might go, Oh, look at that character way back there. That's that guy who I'm going to see in this other story. And when we see those stories repeated to your point, it's not confusing. It, there's a sense of satisfaction that we can recognize these things and put these pieces together on our own. I have to wonder if the reviewers writing about how complicated this is and how you need to watch it multiple times to understand it, it just seems like all it requires is an attention span and that you pay attention to the film to, <laughs> to understand it. That's part of it. The other thing that I think that the film also requires you to bring with it, and I think the three of us are educated enough to understand this, and obviously a European audience would get it, is that there's certain symbolism in here that is very specific to religion, that if you don't know why that guy's wearing that hat and why that guy's got another one, and there's certain particular looks and there's certain conversations related to the Inquisition, there's a whole thing about the Moors, the Muslims who were in, in Spain who then got you know booted out in the Inquisition. Like If you don't have working knowledge of that, say you're an American who has no knowledge of the Inquisition or European church history, it might be a little confusing in that way. I'll, I'll give you that. It does require a certain amount of knowledge, which again, a lot of Buñuel's films also require that because he's playing with Catholicism. He's playing with the divisions within the church in some of his stuff. So you need to have a little bit of a working knowledge of, of what people were fighting over at certain points in European history. The Hats could tell a whole story of this film, and I will say that I wasn't as familiar with the different types of hats that are going on in here, but it's very funny to see that. And to see some of the characters, the Zoti brothers, or Zoto brothers especially, when they will change costumes and be other characters and have the different hats, I thought was kind of a nice thing. I love that. I wrote down, I go, the one guy that looks like Guy Fox, which he has that hat, which is... A very Catholic 1500s style of a hat. So, and then there's another character that it's alluded to that could be Jewish, but they're not going to tell you he's a Jew. The Kabbalist. And then he's got this cloak that he puts on and it's got all these, you know, symbols on it. So some of that symbolism, I mean, I know there's like Mars and Mercury. And so some of that stuff, like if, if you don't know 
what that is, you're like, oh, it's just a weird design, and that guy's wearing a funny hat. So you might not understand uh, that. So it adds, like, like, I don't think it takes away from the intricacy of the storytelling so much. Like, you can follow the characters in their, in their trials and tribulations, but it adds a little extra in there to understand why they're in these predicaments, because they're either part of this this group over here, that group over there, or you understand basically the inquisitional purge of Spain and why there would be this tension between the Muslims and, and them. And all of that plays in the background. They don't, they don't come out and tell you the history. You basically expected to have it when you walk in the door. Not only would I agree with that, but I think that's part of what makes some of these Polish films from the sixties and seventies a little bit I don't want to say difficult for people to grasp, but difficult for people to get the subtext because a lot of them, like certainly this film and uh, Zhuavsky's film, The Devil, which set in a similar time period, came a couple years after this. They both sort of obliquely reference the Polish partitions in the late 1700s and the 1800s when the country was basically occupied by anyone who wanted to occupy them but also the Polish communist situation in the 60s. So it's like you have all of these super amazing layers that I don't think it takes away from the story if you don't know about them, but I think it maybe just adds more. I was actually kind of amazed by certain things that are in here and the fact that they were even able to get it out in communist-era Poland. Because although they weren't under the thumb of Russia as heavy as some of the folks to the south, like the Czechoslovakians, they still had some some regs and things that they were dealing with. And I was kind of amazed by like the nudity and some of the other sort of anti-establishment elements in the story. The Devil, which I think we're going to have to play a drinking game with that, too, because I'm probably going to bring that up a few times. But Zhuavsky's The Devil, which is more violent and is more overtly anti-authoritarian, has a lot of themes in common with this movie, but came out in 71 and was banned. So it's sort of amazing that Haas like, slid in under the wire and... I have to wonder if it's because of the humor and the sort of maybe light, more lightheartedness. It may even be because he was able to get away with it because it was a book that had been established 150 years earlier. And there was maybe some sort of, oh, well, that's one of our great books or this person who was a nobleman or whatever wrote it. So therefore, it's fine. You, you know, it's like, I mean, I don't know about the history on it. The Devils is inspired by one of the most famous like epic poems in sort of medieval Polish history called Jadi, and that didn't save it from being banned. So, I don't know. Like you were saying earlier, it weaves in these historical and political elements in a subtle enough way that I think that's probably why he was able to get away with it. Well, I love that so much of the story is dealing with outsiders and outlaws. And, you know, you've talked about the Moors. There's a major section that has a Romani narrator, the Kabbalists that's in here, and then the Zoto brothers again with the outlaws. And then we have the big villains of the piece are the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! I don't know if it was okay to pick on the Spanish Inquisition, but these guys are this you know, this force that just shows up out of nowhere and then will grab him and try to you know torture him, put this huge helmet on his head. And I, I love that they're the, the bad guys of the story. That's one of the things that surprised me the most because 
it maybe it didn't seem like it at the time, but to me it seemed like the Spanish Inquisition was an obvious parallel to the sort of Soviet Inquisition that kind of resulted in all of those fake trials in the in the late fifties. And so I was amazed that he was able to get away with that part of it. The idea of purges in that in the scene where it's like, oh yeah, you know, we'll we'll go light on you if you uh, turn over your friends. So it's, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, no subtlety there. But that helmet, though, that helmet was pretty boss. I love that. There's also this dissonance of the story being set in Spain and being told in Polish, and this whole idea of the translations that we saw people calling each other senor, even though they're speaking Polish. There have been at least two other adaptations of the Saragossa manuscript, and one was uh, for French TV back in 1973, and there was just recently, last year, a uh, Italian film that was uh, also done. So you would think at some point Spain would do its own thing, but, I mean, this is a, what was it, it was written in Polish first and translated to French. I mean, this, the story of the book itself is fascinating. Uh, his life is bananas. I mean, I, I, I don't know if this is true, but I was reading that he considered himself an Egyptologist and went up in one of the first ever hot air balloons, like you do. The golden age of ballooning can be said to begin in 1783, when the Mongolia brothers made their first ascent in a fire balloon. I think I had a, a slight reaction to this, although it doesn't bother me as much as when I was younger, when there would be something that would take place in a certain place historically, and it would be in a language that wasn't of the place. So, for example, when I first saw Gary, I was like, yeah, you're in the middle of the Amazon speaking perfect German. Yeah, that's it's kind of weird. But anyway. <laughs> I get the sense that in the book, there's more people translating things for each other. That comes through very subtly in that opening where the one guy can't read the story and his enemy is translating for him. And it's like, oh, this is a story about my grandfather. But we, it's just kind of a throwaway line as far as watching the one guy translate for the other guy. It really doesn't come across too much. It kind of made me think of those triad films, like the Takashi Miike films, where you have characters who are all thrown together speaking three different languages. So there are these elaborate scenes of people translating and sort of mistranslating things so that they're more offensive or the real meaning isn't clear. And so you could do it, but I feel like it would just bulk down this narrative so much to include that in every scene. Yeah, it would go from three hours to nine hours. It would become the new Showa, where you've got the filmmaker, and then his translator, and then the subject, and you have to watch the translation go on between each of those. I was like, dude, you could cut Showa down to two hours if you just eliminated all that shit. There is a lot of it. Do you want to go through uh, this in some sort of order? I mean, we've kind of gone all over the place. It's almost like the movie. We've talked on this show before about other films that have these interesting narrative structures and i always say like oh man I, I wish i had the time to sit down and diagram out where all this stuff is and luckily there was actually somebody that did an outline of the saragossa manuscript a guy named martin shell so he has a really nice outline as far as how all of these things go through he doesn't necessarily do the diagramming it's more of an outline form like i said so it's interesting to see, we just have the one scene of the outside story, and then the inside story, there's only like 
26 scenes of what that inside story is, the story of Alphonse. And I love Alphonse is a very interesting guy, and he's just so proud of himself that he's this Walloon captain of the guard. And it's kind of nice to see him suffer a little bit, because it feels like he has no humility. He has so much humor and so much warmth and uh, apparent, but he's also like such, he's so buffoonish that even when he's suffering or you think he might be in danger, there's still that comedic element. And apparently, Zbigniew Shabolsky, who is Alphonse, was usually cast as like a leading man and was a popular sex symbol. So it's sort of, it's hard for me to imagine because I haven't seen any of those like sort of more straightforward dramas with him. It's hard to imagine him not being as kind of puckish as he is here. The other thing with his character, and this is where you know, you'd have to go look it up if you didn't know who the Walloons were. He is supposed to be kind of a stranger in a strange land because he's Belgian. So he's all disoriented anyway. And then he's kind of on the road and he's trying to get around this Inquisition thing because they keep coming after him. It's understandable that he's disoriented. So there's different elements of he's disoriented because he's from somewhere else. He's disoriented because he's got these people on his ass. So there's all these different sort of disorienting uh, pieces that add to sort of the humor throughout. Which I think is my favorite element of this whole thing. (laughs) He's trying to tell the two guys that are, I think, trying to help him out, like his guides or his servants. They're trying to be like, oh, let's go this way. There's this you know these demons in the area etc and he's like nope i'm gonna take the straightest route to madrid that there is we're gonna go this way and that's all there is and then they end up disappearing or just abandoning him kind of reminded me of the opening of uh uh, indiana jones raiders of lost ark uh and then eventually he ends up at this one location and it's interesting how we just keep returning to that location at least in the first part of the film and then a little bit later in the second part of this and i should say right out i mean rob you you mentioned how the the stink of jerry garcia kind of kept you away from watching this and i will say that the three-hour runtime is what kept me away for a long time but my god does this not feel like three hours this just flies by which i wouldn't think because of the way that we have this repetition but each one of these repetitions that we have each time that he wakes up under those gallows it's almost like a little bit of a reset button and i'm it's like a detective story like how did this happen let's investigate for me i've often talked about the difference between two movies that are on the opposite ends of the spectrum here um seven samurai and manos the hands of fate not the mystery science theater version Okay, like Manos is like 80 minutes and it feels like three hours, and Seven Samurai is like three and a half hours and it feels like 80 minutes. So it's it's all about the storytelling. It's all about the pacing. It's about how they can move you through a story that fast, um, even if it's long. I mean, as, as long as the storytelling is good and the visuals are good and the thing moves, I mean, it's it's great. And you really get a setup in the beginning of what it is that you're getting into. I mean, you have this big boisterous score, which, you know, we can get into Christoph Penderecki uh, later. We can talk a bit more about him, but you've got this score, you've got these Euronymous Bosch kind of images and symbols and all of this. And I, I just love the scene where they find the book and they tell the, you know, the guys who are fighting out in the streets, you know, to close the door. I just, 
that's the kind of humor I like. It's just as things are blowing up around you, it's like, you know, hey, you know, can I have some privacy here? I'm, I'm trying to enjoy this. <laughs> I'm trying to read this book. <laughs> yeah, which which is kind of pitch black humor because, I mean, the Napoleonic Wars were not very nice. I mean, so you look at Goya's etchings of the Napoleonic Wars and it was awful. <laughs> it was not a fun time. It was one of the nastiest campaigns. And the fact that they're just like, hey, you know, close the door. Like, leave that out there because I'm, I'm getting into this in here is, uh, is, is a little bit of uh, dark humor that it's funny. One of the reviews that I read said that they feel it's sort of a proto Monty Python in terms of its humor. I won't go as far to say that the humor goes that far out, but there are elements like that close the door bit, which to me is um, just subtle enough. I actually, I would agree with that. I mean, there's that, um, <laughs> to me, the funniest one of those scenes is when he first meets the two princesses and it's clear that he's in some kind of danger or in some sort of situation he shouldn't be in. And they just totally reel him in and convince him that he's like a long lost relative. Not as dramatic, but very, very Monty Python. It's totally that scene when he sees the grail, you know, like, Zoot left the grail, <laughs> grail light on again. Zoot! No, I am Zoot's identical twin sister, Dingo. Oh, but excuse me. Where I, are you going? I seek the grail. I have seen it here in this castle. No. Oh, no. Bad, bad Zoot. What is it? Oh, wicked, bad, naughty Zoot. She has been setting a light to our beacon, which I've just remembered is grail-shaped. And here in Castle Anthrax, we have but one punishment for setting a light the grail-shaped beacon. You must tie her down on a bed and spank her. You must spank her well, and after you have spanked her, you may deal with her as you like, and then spank me. And spank me? And me? And me? Yes, yes, you must give us all a good spanking. After the spanking, the oral sex. It fits right into that kind of thing, but it's a little more subdued. Like the Monty Python guys just blew it all out of out of the water and threw everything into it. But I think it also, and one of the things I love about it so much, is I think it's not afraid to make you think in certain scenes that it might become a horror movie or might have some horror elements. And it delves into the fantastic a lot more than something like Monty Python where certain scenes, you're not sure how they're going to play out, which I think to your point earlier is what makes the story repetition, not boring is you can see that it has a similar structure to one of the previous stories that's been told, but you genuinely don't know what's going to happen. Back when I was a kid, they had this thing called book fairs in elementary school. So they would have this thing and you could buy these books and there was these things called choose your own adventure books. And if you could go, should they do this or should they do that? Go to page this or go to page that. So you and you know, if you were smart enough, you would read the story one time this way and then you'd make other choices. And it was almost that same sort of repetition thing where there were certain markers that would come back on it. So so that's kind of how I felt about that. And plus for me, like repetition story like that, I mean, something like Run Lola Run, you know, where it's like, here's three different versions of what could have happened. You know, I think if it's handled well, it's really good. You know, it can be very interesting. You don't need to know which version 
actually happen, but it's interesting to follow. Okay, well, if I would have crossed the street at this point and got hit by the car, or if I would have crossed at this point and didn't get hit by the car because I was paying attention to the car, uh, then maybe something else would have happened. So it's so I find that really it triggers memories of other things in that way for me. I guess that's why I like something like Edge of Tomorrow so much, where it's like, okay, now how is Tom Cruise going to make it to Emily Blunt this time, and what's going to happen here and there? And just, I do like that repetition where we get to see the same things. And it's like, okay, this time he gets hit by a car, like you were saying. This time he makes it this far, or this time he makes it that far, and just this kind of, it's like a quest, and it's almost like a almost like a video game where you're doing this. And I was thinking when he wakes up under the gallows, it is almost like a reset button where you get to now, okay, now how is he going to do this? Is he going to go back to the hotel? Is he going to go this way? Is he going to go that way? And then there is that really strange shift where we suddenly will, where we leave that set up and then go into this other area where we are introduced to the Kabbalist and the Romani. And it's, I mean, they say end of part one. I don't know if they say it at the exact place where I would say end of part one, but it's very interesting the way that we shift to part two and we keep Alphonse there, but we're now hearing from a completely different narrator and just, again, so many elaborate stories that are just intertwining and interweaving. And then the way that they occasionally will go back and reference the Alphonse story that we get to see his father in one of those stories is really fascinating. And I think maybe that's what makes it feel like it's not three hours because it seems like the end of part one is about halfway, though I agree with you. It it feels like they put that end of part one card too early. Okay, I'm glad it's not just me. Yeah, no, I, I was very confused. I was like, okay, you just said end of part one, and now you're continuing right on with the same dialogue that was a second before the card. Right, yeah, it, that is almost like a Monty Python thing again. I don't think it was put there for story. It seems like it was put there for, like, intermission, like go to the bathroom or something, I guess. <laughs> you know, for a theater. <laughs> Leaving it there definitely gives it that sort of Monty Python thing. The first time I saw it, I assumed it was going to be some kind of spiritual religious allegory because in the beginning he comes across this priest who the priest has decided that he's going to save this man who's possessed and so you get to hear the story from the possessed guy about how of course it's these two women who led to his downfall So once we got to the second half, which is a series of shorter stories, I kind of assumed that those were all going to go back to the priest's advice to him, which is sort of, here's how to avoid going to hell. Because they're basically all stories about people who just do the wrong thing. In that early part of the film, the the first part of the film, yeah, we have Alphonse meeting these two princesses who seem very much like they're succubi, especially that they don't like that he's wearing this amulet that has a, a relic in it, so something holy inside of that, and then they play a game of keep away with him later on with that and end up trying to give him a another thing to wear around his neck that it's made out of their hair. And this whole thing, too, where they have to finish up things by sunrise because it seems like they can only exist at night and that they're trying to get him to renounce his religion and take up Islam. So they want him to, you know, now accept Allah and then have to give up pork. That would be so tough. But then we get 
going with that uh, later on when he wakes up another time and yeah ends up finding this priest slash hermit guy who is wearing these very interesting Arabian slippers um, and he's got Pacheco there this really tall gaunt guy with only one eye who does these great i mean again monty python has these great like kind of things where he's possessed by the devil and i love the the hermit slash priest guy just going pacheco pacheco in the name of god you must tell your story <laughs> he's funny because you can tell like if anyone's watching actually paying attention to the guy you're like this is just a put on he's going in and out like if you're going to find another corollary to Monty Python it's where um, they're going through and it's like oh the cross you know line on the left one cross each and then there's the two jailers and they're like huh and all that <laughs> and then he leaves and then they start talking to each other like so how's your day oh I'm doing alright you know so it's like they stop the put on as soon as someone else is in the room you know but when someone's in the room, they have to act like they're deficient, you know? So it's kind of a similar. It also reminded me a little bit of young Frankenstein when he comes across the, like, hermit priest, who I think is Gene, Gene Hackman. Oh, yeah. Wait, I was going to make espresso. <laughs> and, yeah, there's that great throwaway joke in here where our main guy alphonse is so hungry and he ends up drinking this goat milk and which was kind of interesting that it was very similar to like drinking out of that chalice that he keeps drinking from the skull shaped chalice and he's drinking from the goat milk drink from the goat milk and then um uh, the priest is like yeah uh, pacheco go out and chase the goats up the hill and uh alphonse is like did he did he milk the goats and then when he finds out that he did he just kind of like puts it aside <laughs> Oh, oh, he touched that? No, He's like, no, I'm starving. <laughs> I'm starving. I need food. Oh, he did. Yeah, never mind. Those sort of early Alphonse scenes with the ghosts also reminded me of a sort of slightly Monty Python-esque version of that Russian film, The V, where it's, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's basically... This heroic young man is sort of forced into trying to defeat this witch to grossly simplify the plot. And so he's locked into this basically empty church with a female ghost who sometimes looks very pretty and seductive the way the two princesses do here. But this is just such a comic version of that. And now that you, now that you've said that, about the scene in Monty Python where they go to the the castle with the virgins. I, I'm now now not going to be able to think of that. <laughs> I watched the scene several times. I think that I'm right in saying this is that Pacheco is an unreliable narrator because I think when he ends his story by having his eye plucked out by the Roto Brothers, they pluck out one eye, and then when they go back to the regular story, it's the wrong eye that's missing. I love that about this movie because I assume that, and maybe they just Haas made a mistake or something, but I assume that unreliable narration is supposed to be built into the story just because of the way, I mean, even just what we were talking about with the possessed guy and the priest, the way people sort of eyeball the camera or eyeball each other, like get a load of the story we're about to tell this guy. In the second half of the story, the the woman who keeps sort of implying that she knows something is going on and we never really find out what it is, it just 
the whole movie gives you this sense that everyone is lying to Alphonse in the first half and lying to each other or lying to whoever's listening to the story. Yeah, that she's kind of gaslighting the guy that she's sleeping with and the way that she throws those, uh, what she throws the, is it money at <laughs> yes. him and then, you know, using the vase to cover up her voice and all that. And then we get that, that comes back time and again as well. That's almost like the reset button for that section is the man coming through the window, the, uh, her doing that to, uh, the guy that she's sleeping with and then what happens afterwards. And we get to see the, what happens afterwards several times, as well as who is this person crawling up the window. And we get this whole like entry through window, uh, theme that goes throughout so much of that second half of the film. It's really, I mean, th- this movie is so rich. There are so many things to talk about. It's just, uh, again, like, I think we are jumping all over the place, but I think it is very appropriate for this film. I also like when they're talking about the windows, and this is towards the end, where because there's been so many window scenes, one of them says, you know, every window should have a ladder attached. My favorite of those is one of the first ones where he comes up the ladder and sticks his head through this kind of like hatch. And this woman's husband is immediately horrified and thinks that it's a a bloody severed head because she's told her husband this horrible story basically just so she can cuckold him. (laughs) But her excuse, her way of getting him out of the bedroom is, look, here comes the severed head again. And that whole thing that comes back, like, and it's a long time between it, at least that's how it feels for me, is between the guy who is speaking to the ghost outside of his window, and then we see who the ghost is later on, that he had fallen off one of those ladders and ended up like his head in a barrel, and that's why his voice sounds so funny. He's answering the guy from the earlier scene. It's really nice that we get this call and response throughout this film. Yeah, it's just those multiple angles in the same scene and how how one person thinks they've received a response, but actually it's someone else responding, and then that leads them on a completely different path. And, and I also love how in, in that where you were uh, referencing that, it was his friend had done something. He was like, I've done something awful. I'm going to die tonight. Uh, I'll tell you from the other side if there's you know, purgatory. So his, his friend tells him and he then becomes repentant and wants to go to church and all of this stuff. And then he finds out that actually, no, it wasn't his friend. It was this other guy. And then all of, he just goes, Oh, okay. So he just turns around and leaves, like stops the whole, you know, religious pens. And then at the end of the film, it happens again where there's another thing that leads him back to the church. And like one of the characters goes, Hey, yeah, such an exhausting life. I guess it kind of reminds me, too, of, um, yeah, I mentioned Edge of Tomorrow, which was a Doug Liman film. There's another Doug Liman film called Go, and I want to say that with that, you see the same story or different angles of the same story. So you get, like, Fickner is in that, and he plays this really super creepy guy, and you think that he's trying to pro- uh, proposition these people for almost like an orgy or, or or some sort of, like, sexual thing, and then you find out later that he's actually an Amway salesman, so it makes the joke even funnier. So, Zach... Just say you're open to new things. I remember that movie, but I haven't seen it since it came out. I haven't seen it since it came out on VHS, but I remember liking it a lot. I do think one of the things this movie does so well that makes me like it more than the kinds of recent examples like Go or Run Lola Run or even 
even something like, and I can't believe I'm bringing this up because this is maybe my least favorite film of all time, but something like Inception, where there are layers throughout a story that's being told, it feels to me like a lot of those later movies are very conscious of the fact that they're trying to do something interesting with these kind of repetitive narratives. And there's this sort of <coughs> Pulp Fiction. <coughs> also Pulp Fiction. There's this sense of they just seem really pleased with themselves. Like, look at this clever plot that we're pulling off. And this movie doesn't have that feeling at all. It's just sort of effortless and kind of whimsical in <laughs> in a way that I wish more recent movies that do these kinds of interlocking narratives would be, but it just, I don't know how Haas pulled it off with taking this giant book and making a coherent script out of it, but it just feels so effortless. I was reminded a lot of Celine and Julie go boating and just that kind of the whole thing of like, we're going to go into the house, we're going to take yes. the candy or, you know, the whatever they're calling it in that. And then they'll go into the house and live out these things and then get kicked out of it and then have to go back in and just kind of relive these things. But this whole idea of the magic and the magical realism and stuff that really fits. And it's interesting as I mean, a couple of years later than this, but like, it feels like during this time, uh, you know, mid to late sixties, or maybe even earlier with some of Godard's work that they were really playing with the narrative and just the way that this stuff went. I was curious. I haven't seen Hourglass Sanatorium. You mentioned that you had seen it and that it goes well together with this film is from what I understand. I think they're both similarly very rich. I mean, they're both Haas's films and they have a lot going on sort of in each frame. They're both the kinds of films that you can watch over and over again and still get a lot of new things out of. Hourglass Sanitarium, I don't want to ruin any of it for you, so I don't want to say much about the plot, but it's definitely more overtly surreal than this film. I would say that this is kind of more Bunuelian, whereas that is a little bit more Jodorowsky, if that makes sense. I was picking a little Hardorowski out of this as far as the images inside of the actual manuscript from Saragossa itself, and especially the the two hanged men, the Zoto brothers that are represented in there, really remind me of tarot cards when I was looking at that illustration. Yeah, and I love those elements in that film, and I think it definitely, because of those sorts of stories and those sorts of visual elements, I think it will appeal to people who like gothic fantasy. They're definitely some nods to Poe that I, I don't know if they're intentional, but they managed to make those early scenes in the Kabbalist's house kind of creepy, at least to me. But but the the mathematician coming along just adds that Monty Python-esque humor back in because he's always trying to find logical explanations for everything in a way that are just kind of ridiculous. Yeah, he's like the proto-scully. He is, but less cute. I was also really reminded of Case for Rookie Hangman, and it, I guess 
because of the opening and the use of the images, you know, Robbie mentioned uh, Bosch and there was kind of that flavor to those illustrations as well as uh, in the opening of Case for Rookie Hangman and also the way that we have the layers. I mean, you actually have levels inside of Case for Rookie Hangman where you've got, you know, the people who live in the sky, you've got the, the Brogbagninians and all those kind of things. So it's really this nice layering effect as far as that goes and then also some very surreal moments as well but i will say the one thing i was really uh surprised at now we mentioned that scorsese helped bring this movie out i think it was uh, weird bedfellows jerry garcia martin scorsese and then uh, francis for coppola and as i'm watching this and i'm seeing all of these levels and seeing these stories and and hearing these different narrators I was suddenly reminded of Casino. In that film, I had to laugh because we had Robert De Niro narrating, we had Joe Pesci narrating, we had Sharon Stone narrating, and then all of a sudden Frank Vincent starts narrating, and I was laughing in the theater. It's just like, how many freaking narrators is this movie going to have? And then as I was watching this, I was like, oh, okay, this is probably where Scorsese got that idea from. I mean, one of my favorite things about Scorsese as a person, maybe not necessarily as a director, but is his sort of devotion to Polish cinema from this period in general. And he's made so many efforts to kind of restore films and even just getting them limited theatrical releases. I think he's introduced so many things to people who never would have heard that they even existed, which is a shame. I mean, a lot of these films don't have wide releases or, they're put out by such small companies that nobody really hears about them. Like, I, I don't know why Criterion don't do a better job rescuing some of these. They're too busy with the next Wes Anderson film. You're going to give me a headache. <laughs> don't. I'm feeling very triggered right now. <laughs> you know, they need to do the Wes Anderson film to make the money to allow them to do the stuff like this that only four people want to watch, I guess, is their idea. Well, there are at least three of us here. And we have to talk about the quote-unquote twist at the end of this film, which is that we have been living in David Fincher's The Game this whole time. When the old hermit shows up with this illustrious beard and the turban, and he's the father of the two daughters, and says, oh, this was all a test the whole time. What? There's no way that this was all. This is like the most elaborate ruse of all time. You expect Sean Penn to come walking out behind him like, yep, we got you, buddy. (laughs) Happy birthday, Nikki. I mean, as I always said about paranoia, it takes a certain, I mean, it's not just narcissism. It takes a certain amount of belief that people would go out of their way and spend large amounts of time and resources on you to mess with you. So uh, I'm trying to figure out exactly why. (laughs) He would be put through this other than they just want to entertain themselves, I guess. I don't know. I guess he's now worthy enough to marry the daughters. Which I love that whole recurring theme. I feel like we need to talk about that for a minute. So the the fact that there are all these scenes, uh, you know, when we, st- when we started discussing this film, Rob, I think you were saying you can't believe that some of these things pass the censors. And... The fact that there are all these scenes with different but sort of similar sets of sisters who are trying to seduce one guy, and there's the implication that the sisters have this, like, 
incestuous lesbian relationship. And the the movie just kind of skates by that and doesn't make a big deal out of it, but just keeps repeating that theme. And I think we need to talk about the breasts for a minute. I haven't heard that on a podcast lately. And especially from a lady. Well, it seems like all of the female characters have giant boobs that are barely covered to the extent where it almost becomes a joke, at least to me. Yeah, especially in that uh, the Romani section. It's just like, wow, okay, this is... And, and yeah, the, the handmaidens, I guess they would be, to the two sisters... The way that yeah. they come in wearing those, like, and I kept wondering with the, like, well, they're wearing almost like little metal plates, but then you have the, I, she's dressed kind of like a nun, the woman with the candle who leads him down into the cellar, and she's got one breast exposed, but I was always like, is that her nipple, or is there like a little bud over that, like a little pasty over that or something? I don't know, but I... At fir- the first time I saw this, I was a little taken aback. Not, you know, not because I'm a prude, but because it just seemed like the costumes didn't belong with, <laughs> with the rest of the sort of period costumes. And it gets more ridiculous as the movie goes on because, so as we mentioned, you do have some scenes set in bedrooms. Like the woman who's cuckolding her husband is wearing basically a negligee, which makes perfect sense in the scene, but the woman in the Kabbalist house is dressed similarly, but appears to be, you know, entertaining and they're about to have dinner and it just like doesn't fit. Like they're clearly trying to take him in or something. I think there's kind of two things for it for me. And this is um, something that I find kind of interesting is all of the stuff related to Islam is, for lack of a better term, kind of orientalist. It is an it is a Euro it is a European view of the other and the fact that the guy would have this massive turban and they would have these shoes and like the women live in these you know, these really Moorish um design in this room that they're in and it's very diaphanous, you know, sort of uh, silks and all of this. It's 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 really this other. It's this, you know, because no one lives like that. It's it's an image of a European of, oh, yeah, well, of course, you know, because in Islam, a man can have multiple wives. So so it wouldn't be weird for, like, two sisters to try and get some man to marry them. And they would dress in this really outlandish way. And then this guy would have this massive turban and all this. So, so there's this sort of um, othering that's in there that that I find interesting. It's not a straightforward, basically, show of, of the Muslim faith in any particular manner I don't think you would find anywhere. The other thing that I found interesting when you were talking about these two women, and this goes to get ready to take another drink, was that supposedly Bunuel had seen this several times. He'd see, he'd, the, the story is he didn't see a lot of movies more than once, but he saw this one three times. And the idea of the two women... And that, and then they keep sort of changing. Like, I'm like, is that the same two women in this other story and the same two women in that other story? Like, it, it's either an echo or it's the same actors in those roles in these other places. Kind of reminded me a little bit of, uh, although it's a little bit of a different context, was his, uh, that obscure object of desire where he's got two different women, two different actresses playing one woman and 
they kind of like you think that okay, well, this woman appears at a certain point, and this woman appears at a certain point, and there's a symbolism to why these women appear as that one key person. He even throws that off in that film where he's like, I don't even want you to think about it in that way. You know, where it's like, this would be her when she's hot or cold or, you know, day, night, whatever. Like, no, get that out of your head. So, so I'm thinking that maybe that might have something to do with where that came from, but who knows? I could definitely see that. And Haas plays with that in such a funny way here that it's a little bit less surreal or maybe less mysterious than Bunuel, but I think he also really pokes fun at that sort of orientalism that you're talking about, because even in the first scene where the two princesses are introduced, it seems like Alphonse, and I could be remembering this wrong, but I think Alphonse has this sort of dialogue where he's confused about, are they Muslim or are they demons? Like, it could be one or the other. (laughs) Aren't they the same thing exactly welcome to 2018 so you've got those two sisters you've got the the two sisters from pacheco's story and it's interesting you know he finds the same it's like his mother stepmother i guess it is the nun shows up again takes him down into this the cellar area which is made up to be this beautiful you know area and then there's her sister and she's like yep go ahead you know have sex with my sister but i have to watch the way those scenes are done it just is one of my favorite things about the film because it really reminds me and i think we talked about this briefly earlier but it really reminds me of Pasolini's trilogy of life and the way that some of those sex scenes are handled in like Arabian Nights or Decameron where they're really beautiful and sometimes there are genuinely erotic moments but they're also just very kind of ribald and funny. One thing too thinking about the whole idea of the descent into this basement area and then also there's an ascent into more of an attic area where he talks to the priest slash hermit and Pacheco is with both of those we see people leaving those areas and they're on the ground they're on basically the ground floor even though we see the descent when he uh, at the very end when Alphonse sees the princesses leave and he goes after them and then it's that great use of a mirror i really that shot really tricked me which i appreciate it's basically he's on the ground floor and then later on when um uh they are waiting for him in that inn uh or outside of the inn he goes out what is essentially the attic exit and he's out on the ground floor same thing with pacheco when he leaves from an attic exit he's out there you know next thing we know he's chasing the goats up the hill so it's like the layering as far as buildings don't seem to matter at all they're always on the ground floor whether you've gone up or you've gone down which is another nice way to make us a little unsettled as we watch this um are there any other films that that came to mind when you guys were watching this Oh, okay. I remember that movie. I mean, I feel like we've already talked about so many. It's definitely hard for me to not think about Rivette when watching this. And I know you mentioned Celine and Julie, but Mm. it also made me think about some of his early films, things like Out One, maybe even something like Merry Go Round. So I'm 
obsessed with Rivette, I should probably say. But in those films, they so if you've never seen a Rivette film, they tend to be really long. His, his shortest movie is basically like three hours like this. And they tend to be more about the journey than the destination. And like this film, they will often repeat tropes and arrange tropes in different ways or will retell stories like Selena Julie go boating. There are certain stories that are kind of told in different ways. Out One does that. And they're often mysteries, but he makes it pretty clear that he doesn't care about the solution to the mystery. He's more interested in people going through these sort of like rituals of detection. And they also have kind of moments of really unexpected dark comedy like this film. So that that's what it reminded me the most of. The other one that I could think of, and I was just thinking of it as we were talking, and you had brought up the Decameron is, uh, and this is obviously a, a more modern take on aspects of that, is uh, The Little Hours that came out about a year ago. Some of the, God, I can't remember, they're sort of like some of the modern, quote-unquote, comedy people, um, like, what's his name? Uh, Fred Armiston's in it, uh, I think John C. Riley, and then there's like three nuns, uh, one, one played by... Yeah, one's played by one of the gals who I know really well from the Garfunkel and Oates um, music, comedy music group. Basically, these nuns and they're in a cloister and they're dealing with, you know, it's it it's basically they took these stories from from the Decameron and then kind of played them out and said, right, okay, if if we were just going to ad lib these, you know, like we're not going to write a script. We're just going to ad lib. Like, here's the story. Here's the character. I think what's his name's in it? Dave Franco. So it's, it's quite funny and it has some of these different aspects of it too, where it's of, of a particular era and there's certain sort of religious context of the cloister and, and things like that. And, and just sort of like lusty nuns. So it's funny. Yeah, the uh, the other thing I, I brought it up at the beginning, um, and you have it here, Strains of Ode to Joy on the opening soundtrack, is Christoph Penderecki, who did the score for this, who most people who have no idea uh, who he is uh, as a composer, both for film and classical music, probably know his sort of haunting, almost grating-sounding music that's on the soundtrack for The Shining so it's it's very discordant stuff uh i had a friend of mine who used to work at a long rip gone record stores here in detroit called harmony house he used to use um paderecki's threnody for the victims of hiroshima uh to drive yeah to drive people out of the store at the end of the night because <laughs> and um so he told me that he goes i used to play this to get people out of the out of the store. And when I heard it the first time, I was like, wow, if you haven't heard it, it is amazing to listen to. Uh, it is something that he orchestrated for, I think it's 50 something strings. And the, the concept is basically the lead up to, and then the bombing of and aftermath of Hiroshima. And, it is it is hard to listen to. It will make your skin crawl. <laughs> I mean, he is a master of of atonality and and 
sort of playing with uh, these concepts. And I think that part of the score, I, I had the, I didn't listen to it as closely as if I was just going to listen to, you know, just for the score itself. There seems to be electronic elements uh, in this film. Um, it's either that or something that sounds like some sort of electro- or early kind of synth or something in there. No, I, I think there is. I mean, I know he was pretty experimental or not afraid to experiment. Um, I also, I love Penderecki and, if anyone is a fan of Ken Russell's film, The Devils, Penderecki did an opera called The Devils of Ludun, which is based on the same story and also involves saucy nuns, since, since we were just talking about them. But hey. it's it's not going to be for everyone, but it's a really incredible piece of music that is definitely longer than Threnody to the Victims of Hiroshima, but is well worth a listen. That song has come up on this podcast. This is the third time now, because obviously when we talked about um, Twin Peaks Season 3, Episode 8 of that uses that song wonderfully. Um, So if people remember the music from that, um, I mean, that episode was one of the best things on TV, maybe in this century. Um, And then it is also, uh, it's used in Children of Men. So that was uh, for a while there, that song could only be mentioned on episodes that Christine Makepeace was on. But now we've broken that cycle. So I'm sure that she's going to be happy about that. Last week, we got to talk about Bernard, Bernard Herman and the psycho score. So she's all about the, the discordant strings, I suppose. All right, guys, we're going to take a break and we're going to play preview for next week's show. Take the ribbon from your hair. Take it loose and let it fall Laying soft against my skin Winner by technical knockout Like the shadow on the wall Hey, somebody talk tonight Come and lay down by my side Let me buy you a drink understand about her she's a juicy let the devil take tomorrow you've never done it before certainly not cause tonight i need a friend can i buy a cup of coffee yeah yesterday is dead and gone life makes a beeline for the drain and tomorrow's out of sight in four days i'm gonna be 30 it's bad to be alone. There are some women that love you for yourself, but that doesn't last long. Help me make it through the night. If you want to win bad enough, you win. There ain't no way in hell this dude's gonna beat me. Cause he's too old, I'm too fast, I'm gonna be all over him. I'm gonna kick his ass so bad every time he takes a bite of food tomorrow, he's gonna think of me. He's gonna know he's been in a fight. Cause I'm gonna hit him with everything. I'm not just gonna beat that I'm gonna kill him. I don't wanna be. 
That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of John Houston's Fat City. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Rob and Sam. Sam, what has been the latest in the City of Brotherly Love? The latest thing that I've been working on that's come out is uh, Kino are putting a later Roland film, uh, Dracula's Fiance, out on Blu-ray with another sort of experimental film called lost in New York that has been really difficult to find a decent version of. And I do a commentary track for Dracula's fiance. And if you like Roland's films at all, or you like sort of weird French fantastique kind of surreal horror mashups, it both come highly recommended. How's everything going with Diabolique? It's going well. We just wrapped up a season where we looked at uh, different vampire films, which means I got to write about Michael Pataki and Grave of the Vampire, which is the best thing ever. And Rob, how about you? What's been keeping you busy? Well, I am um, the the continuing updated draft version um, that will live on, known as the Detroit Punk Rock Archive, is available for you. So it's Detroit Punk Archive. Dot com. You can check that out. It's um, stories of venues and various bands, and I'm adding more interviews and more um, information and photos and all of that stuff as they come in. So that's very cool. Uh, the records related to that will come out next year. So that's been my um, night grant here in Detroit, little arts grant that I was working on. And um, just trying to see what the latest is with some other book projects that I'm working on and trying to get my house done. So that's been uh, been the main thing. So uh, fixing up a house that the wife and I bought uh, about a year ago. So a um, bunch of odds and ends and um, hanging out with uh, my cats, I guess. And, and it's uh, it's an exciting life when you're a rock star, I know. Are you fixing a hole where the rain gets in? I'm trying. I really am. Make sure you put a ladder underneath all of the windows, though. It makes sense. It really does. (laughs) It only makes sense. That's right. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.